The following sermon is from Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Manhattan. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith. Head to fapc.org and join our email list and be sure to subscribe to FAPC in New York City, our YouTube channel. And now we invite you to breathe deep and lean into the beauty of worship with Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. Listen now for God's word to you as it echoes to us from Exodus chapter 32, beginning with the first verse. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone, so that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. And of you, I will make a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Before Moses can lug the stone tablets, granite slabs etched with God's ten laws down the mountain, the Hebrew people break the first commandment. It's got to be some sort of record. 
The law hasn't even been properly filed, and already it's been violated. To be fair, the first commandment is a tough one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. It turns out to be a hugely challenging hurdle for humanity, and Exodus 32 demonstrates why. We pick up the story and learn that Moses is still on the mountain, still taking dictation from God. In his absence, the people grow increasingly restless. Eventually, their grumbling boils over. Summoning Aaron, the camp's guidance counselor, the Hebrews list their grievances. What's with Moses? Nobody's seen him for weeks. This is a problem. He's supposed to be the leader of this expedition. We want to hear his plan for leaving the wilderness. We want more face time and a little more give and take with this prophet. And yet for all we know, Moses could be dead. And what's with God? Honestly, we're finding it hard to relate to the pillar of cloud and fire we've been following. Can we be sure this God is trustworthy? How do we know Yahweh has our best interests at heart? Quite frankly, the God who calls the mountaintop home thundering away up there scares us. And, and what's with the promised land? I thought we came out of Egypt with a goal. We're traveling to a new home, a place where milk and honey are plentiful. Instead, we've hunkered down here, roughing it at the foot of the mountain. There's no end to this in sight. The people encircle Aaron and declare, we're done. We're done being tired. We're done being scared. We're done being patient. We've reached a decision. We want a different God. In fact, we want a whole different approach to religion. We want to worship something manageable and responsive for a change. We want gods that will fertilize our crops, shine our shoes, fight our battles, solve our problems. We're asking you, Aaron, to get creative here. You've been to seminary. You've studied world religions. We want you to provide us with a more workable faith. We've brought you a bag full of our old cufflinks and earrings. Melt them down. Whip up something small, shiny, and ready to serve. And there you have it. These two remarkable scenes play out side by side in Exodus. Up on the mountain, God says to Moses, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and down in the valley, the people say to Aaron, make gods for us, make reasonable, relatable gods for us. Over the centuries, this, this powerful juxtaposition, the evocative imagery of Exodus 32, has inspired a fair share of amazing artwork. From Raphael, to Poussin, to Chagall, my current favorite painting comes from the Florentine school and the brush of Filippino Lippi. In Lippi's painting, the idol fashioned by Aaron, a golden bull, 
dances through the sky. It looks as though the metal creature has been animated by the revelers who are down below. They blow trumpets, sing and twirl. It's a happy scene. The people cavort beneath their freshly forged shiny god, a god who is less fire and smoke, less demanding, less intense than the one rumbling atop the adjacent mountain. Lippy's painting makes me smile. I get it. Everyone, me included, imagines that if we had a chance to be in charge, if we were able to hardwire the cosmos, religion would work better. God would get more done. God would extinguish pain and suffering. And God would focus on solving our problems. God would make life easier and maybe more fun. What's wrong with that? What's really wrong with a, a golden calf? Nothing, says Exodus. Nothing, if you prefer delusion over reality, the blue pill over the red one, an imaginary friend over a mysterious and possessive God. Admittedly, the whole mysterious and possessive thing feels sort of daunting. Up on the mountain, Exodus tells us, the Almighty throws a fit. It's a humdinger, a tantrum for the ages. Your people, God thunders at Moses, the ones you brought out of Egypt have decided to worship a fake, a substitute, a nothing burger made out of discarded bangles. L look at these fools with their stiff necks. They, they couldn't swivel their heads to save their souls. They've got no vision. They're incapable of seeing beyond this moment, beyond their own petty needs. Your people, God continues, getting right in Moses' face, are fickle. They're ungrateful. They're unfaithful. I'm done. Step to the side just a bit because I'm going to hurl a ball of lightning into that camp and fry them to a crisp. I'm going to start over your people. Did you notice the shift in God's language? Throughout Exodus, God's been calling the Hebrews my people. I've heard my people's cry. I'm going to deliver my people, my people who I brought out of Egypt. Now that they've embraced a substitute, now that they're dancing around a hollow brass bull, God sounds decidedly less chummy. Have the Hebrews hurt God's feelings? Maybe. It certainly sounds like God wants a divorce. They're your people, Moses. You brought them out of Egypt. I want nothing to do with them. One day, when our children were small, we were driving along on a family car trip, talking about the day ahead. Would we stop for ice cream? Maybe, or maybe this was the day we would go on a no ice cream diet. The teasing seemed friendly until it didn't. <laughs> At some point, the banter crossed a line for our youngest, Oliver, then four years old. 
strapped in his car seat, Ollie stared steely-eyed out the window and declared, I'm escaping this family. His voice quieted the car until my wise partner in life turned around in her seat, fixed our son with her fiercest gaze and declared, no one escapes this family. Over the years, this exchange has evolved into a Black Johnston litany. If someone feels distressed or mistreated, unfairly teased, or just plain disregarded, they will announce, I'm escaping this family. And without fail, someone else will arch an eyebrow and reply, no one escapes this family. I've been thinking about this goofy litany all week. Amidst the endless news stories telling us how hopelessly divided America is, I find myself longing for a litany like this. Regardless of how cranky we might feel, I think our country needs to be told, no one escapes this family. Moses does this. Moses actually does this to God. According to the good book, God is so angry, so fed up, so hurt, watching the people dance around their fake God, the Almighty declares, I'm out. But Moses will have none of it. Spinning around in his seat, the prophet stares down the great I am. Listen here, you you of the burning bush and the parting of the Red Sea, you of the let my people go, you brought these people out of Egypt. You made promises to their ancestors. You're the one driving the bus to the promised land. Yes, yes, your people are misbehaving, but you can't leave now. No one escapes this family. And you know what? It works. After Moses makes his speech, Exodus records one of the most remarkable verses in all the good book. And the Lord changed his mind. The first time I read this verse, I blinked. I thought, the Bible has made a mistake. God doesn't change. God doesn't need to be reminded to do the right thing. I, I wanted to edit scripture. I, I wanted to save God from this, this whole embarrassing episode. Surely the Holy One doesn't get tied up in emotional knots like we do. Surely. Over time, though, I have changed. And I've come to treasure this passage. In Exodus 32, God is not a theological proposition, a, a subject that you might debate with a friend over afternoon tea. In, in this passage, God's edges have yet to be smoothed down by squeamish preachers or history's swirling sands. Exodus 32 is a wild ride. It merits a warning from the captain. Buckle up, it's going to be a bumpy ride. Unfiltered jealousy and excruciating heartbreak flash on top of Mount Sinai. 
Exodus 32 is religion raw and untamed. It's an unsettling scene, a frightening scene, a scene that stands in stark contrast to the sedate faith being crafted by Aaron down in the valley. There's no wild power coursing through that docile golden calf. Aaron's bovine god will will never stomp its hoof and make demands of the people. Its shiny flank is ready to reflect whatever the heck we want. Up on the mountaintop, God howls at this betrayal. You shall have no other gods before me. Buffeted by wild winds, Moses carves these words in stone. Of of course he does. He's staggered. He will never forget this encounter, this this mind-bending moment, standing before the heart of the universe, hunched before this passionate whirlwind, this, this fierce God who's determined to be in a family with us. Exodus 32 cries out to souls who are easily beguiled by shiny things. Here, if you're willing to take the risk, is a God not made by human hands. Here, atop this mountain, is one worthy of worship. As you face these trying times, my friends, do so with Christ's peace in your hearts. Have courage, hold fast to what is good, do not return evil for evil, strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the suffering, honor all people, love and serve the Lord. Remember, no one escapes this family. Amen.